what is the most important ministry in the church? If I were to ask that, I go and work with leaders all the time, and, and um, you know, the women's ministry think it's the women's ministry, or the WMU, and uh, if it's the men's ministry, or if it's Sunday school, or if it's the youth ministry, or the children's ministry. But I'm going to share with you today the most important ministry of the church. And uh, to draw our attention to that, if you would look with me, and I think the words are going to be on the screen, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. The most important ministry in the church is the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men... But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also to your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but we are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an, have an answer for a, those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and our sound mind is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. <clears throat> Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ through God as we were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So today I'd like for us to look at five, extract five elements of that. First, how do I know that the ministry of reconciliation is the most important ministry? It's because what, it's, the, it's the, the goal of the entire message of the Bible. From the very beginning, God created Adam, put him in a garden, and uh, gave him one job and one rule. You would think most of us could handle that, right? So let, let, just to draw your attention to that, and you don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. That's his one job. Cultivate the garden and keep it. Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree you may eat. Gave him all the free range. We got free range chickens and free range kids. Got free range atoms from the beginning. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat from it, you will surely die. One job, one rule. And guess what? He broke it. And from the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tell, tells us that God knew that that would happen. He said, I'm gonna, we're going to create, create people and that we know that because we give them free moral choice, one of these days they're going to violate the rule. One of these days when they do, but the promise that we make is when you, when you violate the rule, you break a relationship with God and you will have to die as a result of it. So he knew, so the, from the very beginning before the first person was created, I can imagine that there's God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus and it says that they were pre-existing and they're having a conversation. Okay, we're, gonna, we're creating the man. We're going to create people. What are we going to do 
when they fail to live up to the standard and the holiness and, the, and break the relationship that we have. And they said, they agreed, Jesus, you're going to go and die on their behalf. So they had this conversation before the first man was ever created. And the rest of the biblical story is about God's attempts, God's efforts to reach into human history and bring reconciliation from that broken relationship and bring man back into right relationship with him. We see it in, from the very beginning when Adam broke that rule. It says that God made a garment of, of, of furs and gave it to him. Well, what had to happen for that to happen? It had to be a death, a substitutionary death of an animal for, for that to happen. We see it pictured uh, all the way throughout the Old Testament. We see it with Abraham and Isaac who said there's got to be a sacrifice, there's got to be a, be a death. We see it pictured in the Passover meal of the, uh, of the Jewish exodus that, that there had to be a substitutionary death of, a, of an animal and that represented the ultimate death of Christ. We see it in the temple and the, the tabernacle when it's created an institution of, of, um, of, uh, of uh, sacrifices of animals in order to demonstrate the sacrificial death of Christ. All of those were shadows and future predictions of what Jesus would do. Galatians 4 tells us that in the fullness of time, Jesus came and, and became our, our substitute. All of those efforts were intended to restore that relationship with God. I remember, uh, some of, many of you that are a little older may remember 9-11, and I had this really interesting picture, and you see the last phrase up there says that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, to bring this right standing, to restore this relationship that we have with God. And I remember 9-11 uh, happened, uh, something really stood out to me that many of us in our culture, in our day, believe that our righteousness is based on some good works and moral living. And the reality is that is not true. Our righteousness has to deal with, are we in right relationship with God? The right living and the good works will be a result of that right, uh, right relationship. Uh, in fact, uh, John chapter 3 tells me something that's kind of interesting. Jesus and says that he gave the... Uh, if we, for the popular words that we know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Um, he says something else immediately after that that really came home to me. I was watching one day uh, the story of the book of John. I uh, got to chapter 8. And there's a video called the, uh, based on the ESV, and it's really powerful. And there's a, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And uh, they came and they bring the woman and they cast her. Y'all know the story. They throw her at Jesus' feet. And then Jesus writes in the stand, and, and then he said, he's without sin, cast the first stone, and they gradually leave. And afterwards he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're all gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And in the next scene, there's a Jesus in the, in the temple treasury, and he's condemning the, uh, the Pharisees and the religious leaders for their lack of unbelief. And I began to see, 9-11 happened, I saw, this, I saw this picture, if you'll go to the next scene. I was thinking about New York City, and I was seeing some of the wonderful things there, and in, this, in, the, in, in New York City, it's just lined with skyscrapers and uh, uh, tall buildings. <clears throat> and I thought, how much like we are in New York City, that as we compare our own righteousness we tend to compare it to the people around us. 
we tend to say, well, I'm a good person compared to this person, and I'm not a, an evil person compared to that person. And just like, the, just like the, if you walk through the streets of New York, you'll see 20-story skyscrapers, and you'll see 40-story and 100-story skyscrapers, and they're all uh, a sense of our own self and moral righteousness as we compare to one another. But the reality is, I, I saw some satellite images after that, and uh, this is really what, instead of what we look like, if you'll go to the next slide, this is what we may look, oh, we, there's another slide in between there, that we look like from God's perspective, from the satellite views, we're all just black dots. We tend to measure ourselves by the people around us, but from God's perspective, we're all just black dots. And, um, and our righteousness, fortunately, is not something that we can earn, but something that's given to us through Christ Jesus. So, how do we help communicate uh, our, uh, our message about who Christ is and, uh, and the, the, the sacrifice that he made to us? So, there's a couple of things I'll share with you. First of all, the me- and here it says, uh, there's an implied that we proclaim the message. Man, we've already heard it proclaimed this morning through the, mess, through the music. I was real inspired by the music and those words remind us of the sacrificial death of Christ. This morning, literally hundreds of thousands of pastors will get up in pulpits and declare the message of Christ uh, across the word. But look at what else he says. Paul says, we persuade men. We persuade. We go beyond a proclamation to trying to convince people that this is the truth and convince their need for Christ. He said, and then it says that we persuade men, and he said that you see our, the, the, our manifest in us. We do it by example. That persuasion is not just with, with empty words, but it's by, our, by example that we live it out. He says in verse 12 that you might have an answer. We call that apologetics in the seminary. We want to be able to respond to the questions that people have. Sounds like apologetics. That always people say, well, you have to apologize for the word or apologize for Jesus. No, it's a discipline that says that we're answering questions so that people might have a greater understanding of truth and understanding who God is. In verse 20, he says uh, that uh, God is making an appeal through us. God is uh, uh, using us. as become, We become instruments to, to have this appeal to, to follow after Christ. And then he goes even more personal. I beg you. We beg you. We implore you. We go the extra, strength, the extra mile to try to get you to understand the message of Christ so that you may be fully aware of it. Well, how do we know when the message has been planted and the results of the message? That leads us to the manifestation, a, a visible expression of that. Um, and the result of that is transformed and changed lives. And uh, so I'm going to share something with you just a minute. I'm going to do a little survey here real quick. Um, how many of you came to Christ when you were in elementary school or younger? Okay. How many of you were uh, teenagers, adolescents? All right. How many of you were like young adults? Okay. Got a scattering. How many of you were older than young adults? All right. Got a good scattering. Most of the people in our churches today came to Christ when they were young. And so when we start, the, the number one question that I got as I was doing youth ministry and, work, and I've worked with church, uh, young adults in our churches is, how do I know if I'm a Christian? How do I know if that decision I made when I was nine years old is still good, that it still counts? And so here's some things that I'm going to share with you that, um, that will, 
well address that issue because the, the message in, John, in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 says, if we have responded in faith to the gospel and we have a changed life, we will look different. We will be different. We will, the old has passed away and behold, the new things are come. There's a spirit of transformation. So as we ask this question, I say, what are some evidences of a transformational experience that comes as responding to the message of Christ? And uh, so I found a wonderful illustration. When I was in seminary, uh, there was another student from Nigeria there. And, uh, and I can't recall his name. I should have, you know, how many of you wish you'd written down a lot of things that happened to you because as you get older, you can't remember them all. I think, oh, I'll never forget this, but I forget. I told the ladies this morning, my forgetter works better and better the older I get. So. And so I can't remember his name, but I remember the experience. And he had in, carved onto the side of his face a, a, a symbol, an emblem. And so I asked him what that was for. And he said, well, the, the traditions in our, in our com communities is that there's still tribal wars and the one village will go raid another village and kill the men, kidnap the women and, uh, and the children. And uh, he said, this is my family. If you'll, you can pull that slide up. There's, that's my family insignia is on my face. Uh, and he says, uh, so that's that way. So if, if they find me or they, we find the children, we know which family to reunite them. Now, I thought about that many times since then. And I thought, you know, when we become part of God's family, and that's done when they're just days old, by the way. So that just in case. When we become part of God's family, he does, there are some things that are inscribed on us. They're not physical, but they're spiritual and emotional and uh, internal. So there, I'm going to share with you five birthmarks of the believer. All right? Five ways to know uh, that you're part uh, of the, the experience of God and a transformational experience. First uh, John chapter 5 tells us, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. So John had this issue back in the first century. There are always people questioning about Am I really saved? Am I really saved? Well, here's five. Uh, I'm going to give you four birthmarks of some things that indicate how you move from death to life. You see the contrast there in this passage. We move from death to life. We move from darkness to light. We move from isolation from God to intimacy with God. We move from believing a lie to embracing the truth. So here are four evidences of that. Number one, a desire to obey the Word of God. Let me tell you what, if, if you're a Christ follower, you've been changed in your heart and your spirit, you're going to want to do what the Bible says. In fact, uh, one of the things that I'm struck with when I ask our students, everybody knows the Great Commission, and I'll do it. I say, okay, what are we supposed to, making disciples, what are we supposed to teach? And in seminary, the first response, all these seminary students is, all things. But we're not to teach all things. The Great Commission says, Go and teach them to obey all things. Obedience is the central characteristic of those who follow Christ. So in this one we see we have a, a desire to obey the, God, uh, obey the Word of God. The second thing you see is that there is a love for other believers. A love for other believers. And I think that love is both attitudinal, affectional, and action. Listen, when we become part of the family of God, we have this 
It's amazing. I go to places, I mean, I, I've got, I tell people I'm the white sheep of my family. Most people have, most families have a black sheep. I'm the white sheep. I got so many black sheep in my family, I stand out. All right? And so uh, I am, um, I'm fully aware that when I'm in certain situations with my extended family, we don't, we don't connect that well because they don't have the same priorities for life that I have. But I can get with other believers and I ha- can build a genuine relationship with love that can last a long time because we're part of the family of God. So you see a new love for other believers. The third thing you'll see is an awareness of the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you know if the Holy Spirit's at work in your life? I think there's three things. One is there's a character formation. Character formation. In that you see, that's, that's where Jesus said people that are uh, following after me and uh, the fruit, Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit. When you see these characters being formed in you, the fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, you see uh, Bible illumination. The, the word is clear that the Spirit will guide us into all truth. So we need to be understanding what the truth of the Word of God is, and the Spirit guides us to understand that fully. Number three is ministry activation. We know the Spirit's at work in us when we're operating in our spiritual gifts and empowered by Him to do ministry. And if you're not doing ministry, you're missing a whole component of what God wants to do in your personal development and for the, uh, the, the activity of the, of the church. And the last thing that's on here is a clear personal testimony. There's got to be somewhere that you say, but I used to think this way, and now I think this way. I used to walk this way, and now I walk this way. Now, it may not be uh, a one-time experience, because most of, like all of us are born. I can't remember my birth. Uh, it's really a tough thing there. But most of us don't. But I know I'm born because I'm alive, because I'm breathing, because I'm doing things. All right? So we need to have a, a, a clear testimony. The other picture that I see in the Bible is the, book, is the story of Lazarus. So Lazarus was dead and, and four days, and Jesus goes to him, and they said, boy, by now he stinks. And Jesus goes, and he says, roll the stone away, and he calls Lazarus by a name, and he moves from death to life. Listen, there's got to be some change like that that we can tell a story about our own life, that I was this way, God's at work in my life, and now I do this way. All right, a clear testimony. All right, we're getting near the end. What's the model? What's the model for reconciliation? Jesus is our model. Jesus gives us that ministry of reconciliation. It's given to the church to continue uh, both collectively and individually. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes that Jesus thought it not robbery of the equal with God, but he set that aside and became a servant and obedient even to death on the cross so that others might come to know Christ. We sang the end of that, to the name of of Christ be uh, exalted by every tongue. Listen, that ministry that Jesus did, he, he gave up his position of godness Think about that for just a minute. He emptied himself out of Godness to come and be like us. It says that the word, he says, he came and dwelt with us. The word for that is tabernacle. That's when the Old Testament, there was a, there was a tabernacle. So God said, this is where I'm going to live in the middle of you. Jesus said, I'm going to come and tabernacle and live in the middle of people so that I can restore them in this right relationship with God. So we have that 
example. So the ministry of reconciliation, the way is this incarnational living that we do. We follow Jesus' example of that. We tell the story of Jesus. We need to be telling the folks that we encounter about who Jesus is, how he's changed our life, and what he came to do. And then finally it says we're ambassadors of reconciliation. What is that? We're representatives of a heavenly kingdom in the places that we go, the places that we live, the places we live, work, and play. I've come to see across our country many churches now, many churches that in the 50s and the 60s served the communities right around them because we had a different environment. Many churches now, the people who attend do not live in the communities. People will drive literally miles and minutes to come to a place where God's at work. But they have to go back then and be God's and Christ's ambassadors in the places where they live, work, and play so that the message of Christ can be communicated. And this picture that we have that, that Jesus had that came for that fulfill that ministry, he died on our behalf, he rose on the third day in order to, uh, to become the, the, uh, the, the restoration, to restore that, that relationship. And then Jesus passed that ministry along to the twelve and to Paul. And they passed it on to others who followed after them. But my friends, we're in danger today of, of, of failing to pass it along and uh, to the next generation. If we're not careful, we pass it from person to person to generation. And if we're not careful, we will drop the ball. All right. Now, I've just shared a few things with you, and I'm almost wrapped up here. Probably you say, well, Randy, I, I know all that stuff. I've been in church my whole life. I know that's true. Uh, I've done that or whatever. Here's what I, that I see that's an issue for the church, the modern church. It's not what we know to do. It's that we're not motivated to do it. We want some results without doing the work. And uh, so I want to share with you just one last thing here. What's your motivation for, for becoming uh, ministers of reconciliation? You back up to verse 9, it says in that passage, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Listen, we're, we are to be motivated to please God. We do spend a lot of our time trying to please our spouse, our parents, our children, our boss. We spend a lot of time trying to please a lot of people around us. Brother Don, we want to make sure he's happy with us. We can please other people. But those things don't last at the end of the day, we want to please God, our maker, our redeemer. The second thing you see in that passage, in the next verse, it says, uh, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Listen, that's a, that's a stark reminder that one day all of us, there's going to be a judgment. We're all going to, all going to stand there. I was, we were talking about this week with some, some students at campus, and we were just talking about some television preachers. And uh, we're kind of wondering, say, okay, I wonder what theirs is going to look like. The people who have fleeced God's people for, to buy jets. You know, we were talking about some of the television evangelists that are re, refitting their, their jet streams and all of those things. Some of us are going to stand there in line in, in our whole world. And we, this is a big curious thing. I don't know what it's going to look like. Brother Don, you may know. But I wonder, are, is it going to be a private showing or is it going to be a public showing? Are we all going to be in line when that happens, waiting for there to be the next one? Am I going to be in line behind somebody that's got a long life of things to tell? Or am I going to be in a 
short line. I don't know what that's going to look like. But uh, it says that we're all going to be, we're going to be come to judgment. And somehow we're going to see all those things that we could have, should have, would have done. And we're going to have to hold account for that. And that's why the next verse says that we're, we stand in fear of that. We're fearful of the Lord. But you don't want to live in fear. You don't want that to be. Fear is a powerful motivator, but it's not the best motivator. The next motivator I see is in, in verse 14. It's supposed to be controlling love in verse 14. Look what it says. For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. What does that mean as I've studied this? Is that the love from God? Our love for God? The love of God? Prepositions are a crazy thing. We fight about them sometime in our, with our doctoral students. What are you trying to communicate with a preposition? But I think it's really all of those things. We love because he first loves us. It's the number one characteristic, John, 1 John says, that God is love. So we are to be so overwhelmed with our understanding of how much God loves us and so full of love back to him that it ought to compel us to invite other people on this journey. We shouldn't have to be forced to. It should be out of the overflow of our life. All right. Last thing. I tell my students, uh, we talk about teaching the Bible and preaching the Bible. And at, at, the end of the, at the end of every message, at the end of every lesson, you've got to answer the so what question. All right? So I've just given you five principles. All right? The message, the method, the model, the manifestation, the ministry. So what's the so what? There's two messages, two responses that you can do today. Number one is be reconciled to God. I don't care. Anytime you get a group of people together, more than one or two, three, five, there's some people that are far from God. Some of you would be in here and say, I don't know. I was just driving by. I saw a crowd who came in because I saw a bunch of people here. I've had people at churches when I say, what was, and my question I usually ask our guests is, what was the occasion that brought you to be our guest today? And they just say, some of them had people say, you know, I don't know. I hadn't been in church in 20 years. This morning I got up, felt like I needed to come. You may be one of those people. You don't even know why you're here. You don't know why you walked in. You didn't know I was going to be speaking. You just said, I feel like I got to go today. I mean, your message might be, I've been far from God, and I need to be reconciled with Him. Number two, maybe you've walked away from God. Maybe at one time you had intimacy and closeness, closeness and you were representing God well, and now you've walked away, and your lifestyle or your words are not adequately being ambassadorial. Number three, maybe you're just not sure. Look at the birthmarks that I gave you. Desire to obey the Word of God. Clear testimony. Love for other believers. Work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You have a check mark by those, or you're not sure? You might need to talk to somebody about that today and get that settled. Lastly, second, second thing you might want to do your call might be to be an ambassador. You might say, Brother Randy, I, I know I'm supposed to be an ambassador, but I've not been a very good one. I know I've not been representing Christ in where I live, work, and play. I've not been representing Christ in the places that I have influence and power. I was struck as I was reading this that you know that the word ambassador is a relatively new word. It was not, that word was not used to represent government, especially in the United States, until 1893. 
Before that, the word that was used was minister. We had ministers instead of ambassadors. But it's interesting that we use a biblical term to represent that. Some of our ministers, that I've, uh, our ambassadors I've thought about, they're in some lush places. You know, I like, I'm going to be an ambassador to, uh, you know, the Virgin Islands or whatever and hang out on the beach. That's, that's a pretty good gig. But you know, some of our ambassadors are some, some pretty tough places. And I think there have been five ambassadors who have been killed in their places of service, most recently in Benghazi. So it doesn't matter. Wherever we go, wherever we are, wherever we are called to go, we are to be Christ's ambassadors. You don't want to be Christ's ambassador. It's not a, not a tiresome obligation. It's an energizing opportunity. And when we're letting the Holy Spirit guide us and we're fulfilling that and God empowers us to be His voice and His word, His example into a, to a dark world, a dying world, that is a wonderful opportunity.